Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. We are in the middle of a series currently where we are walking through the gospel according to John. I hope it has been a blessing to you thus far. It has been a joy for me to to have the opportunity to consider what is just a really rich and beautiful text. We talked about it from the very first week, that there is more than meets the eye when it comes to the gospel of John. That John is, uh, he's he's very much an intelligent writer. He's, He's always trying to communicate more than simply an idea, but perhaps an idea for us to consider underneath it all. And we, we've seen that throughout the stories. We looked at the signs, starting in the wedding at Cana, going up to Lazarus being resurrected this past week in John 11. And this week we're going to be landing in John chapter 13. And at this point of our story with Jesus, uh, Jesus has now returned to, to Jerusalem. He's been, he's been welcomed with, with open arms by the people singing Hosanna, declaring him king and, and ready to crown him. He, he's almost arrived like a conquering king to the Roman oppressor in the minds of the Jewish people. And it's right before the Passover festival that we find ourselves in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. And as they're eating, something really profound takes place. And so we're going to read together out of John chapter 13, and you can follow along on the screen starting in verse 1. It says, It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those of you who've had a bath need only wash your feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, you, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, should also, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So perhaps you've come across this 
piece of text before, but at the very beginning, it notes that Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world. So my, my opening question for you this morning is, what would you do if you knew that the end was coming? I think this is like a classic question that is kind of brought before you. If you had one final day left on earth, what would you do? How would you spend it? What would, the, what would be the things that you would perhaps prioritize in the way that you would spend that final day? I think as, as humans, there is a level of, of reflection in things that come to mind when we consider a question like this. And this isn't just something that we're aware of coming to an end perhaps in our life, but it can be things in the here and now. We have things end in the here and now. Uh, a relationship with a significant other. Uh, going from one country to another. Ending up finishing school, and, and there, there's an end to that. This past week, I was able to spend a little bit of time with White Rock Christian Academy, their high school students, and I always find this with grade 12 students, that once you get to the uh, end of that year, there's always somebody in the classroom who, who makes the note that, man, it feels like we've really started to connect in these last couple months. Why didn't we do that beforehand? There's always at least one, one student, and nothing's wrong with that, but I always find it somewhat comical because even in a situation like, like White Rock, it's a K-12 school. There's kids in there that have been in that same classroom from the very beginning of their school career, and yet they get to that point at the very end, and they, they wonder, why did I not have the same connection at the end all throughout? I think there's perspective that you gain when you have the end in mind. This past fall, uh, I was able to spend some time on Keats Island at Barnabas Retreat Center. It's a beautiful space. And I was there with a group of pastors, and we were kind of reflecting on what the last two years have looked like within, within church circles, within ministry, and just as, as leaders as a whole, uh, reflecting on, on the things that you, we've grieved, the changes that we've had to try to implement, the ways in which it's impacted us individually. And there was an immense time of self-reflection, probably more than I would say I'm comfortable with. Uh, I, I don't think I naturally adhere to self-reflection, but we're doing it as a group, so I, I, I participated. One of the practices that they asked us to do uh, as individuals was to consider this situation, that you've come to the end of your life and everyone has gathered for your funeral. All the people that you love and that, that you want to be there. And then they asked us to write a eulogy that we wish we wished to have one of our significant others, friends, family communicate. So I, with, with Adriana in mind, that was for whom I wrote the eulogy. And, and the purpose of the exercise is this. What do you want people to, to remember you by? What do you want people to say about you? Because I think there's so much that we do on a day-to-day -day basis that would probably not make it into the eulogy that we would craft for another. I'm not saying that, that working hard or having a vocation or, or some of the habits and the, the practices of our day are not necessary, but I would contend that sometimes we prioritize the wrong things in our everyday lives because we don't have a perspective of the end in mind. 
And so I, I wrote this, this eulogy. In, in some ways, it's like a letter as if it would be something I would want Adriana to say about me when I was to die. And, and I didn't leave it at that, actually. I, when, I, when I came home, I read it for her. And, and that, that's an, uh, an emotional thing to engage in. But, but, but the reason why they invited us to not just write it, but to share it with the person we, we had in mind along the way, because it creates this deep sense of accountability out of what's being said. And, and there's, there's an awareness, because when I, when I wrote this, this eulogy, I, I didn't write that I wish Adriana would say, man, I, Jason was the best preacher in the world. I, 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 didn't, I didn't write that. I, I loved how many hours he spent working on the church. I, I, I didn't write those things. What I wrote was that, that she saw that I took time out of my, my day to give her my full attention. That I would hold her hand tight when we would walk. That we would pause and we would pray together before we ate a meal or went to sleep. That those were the things I would wish that she would remember. That it was, it was more about the relationship that we shared. The manner in which I perhaps led our family spiritually. The way I was as a husband. These were the things that I wanted her to remember me by. And, and I think it's interesting for, for you to ask yourself that question this morning. What do you want to be remembered by? And if you were in that, that last day, how would you prioritize it? What were the things, what would be the things that you would give weight to prioritize the right things, to allocate time appropriately, and to hold true to character traits that perhaps we, we would hold are valuable and important. Because when the end is approaching, I think those thoughts get a sense of clarity. It isn't actually haphazardly done, but it's done with a sense of intentionality. So again, I ask, what would you do if you knew the end was coming? This is what Jesus is doing. This is where we find him in this moment. We know this from what we looked at even this past week, uh, where he was arriving at Bethany. Lazarus is resurrected. But before that, we knew that if he was to return to Bethany, it was in such close proximity to Jerusalem, it was with the knowledge that the end was coming. That it would be the beginning of the end for him to return to his friends. And then the beginning of this passage, he, he says that, it, it says that he knew that his end was coming. He was acutely aware of this. And then Jesus chooses to respond in a specific way. So just like you would respond in a way of prioritizing that which is important in your final day, I want you to realize Jesus is doing the same. With the end in mind, this is how Jesus chooses to act. To act. In John 12, Jesus arrives as the king, 
And then there's this language of, of darkness and light, which is brought forward again in John 12, where he says that you're gonna, not going to have the light. You're only going to have the light just a little while longer. And then they arrive at this upper room, and there's much that takes place in this upper room. That they, they break bread. They're, they're enjoying a festival time together. And, and I want you to be aware of this, this group of friends. This, this group of disciples that's sitting around the table in this upper room. This isn't just a, a, a random group that came together on, on a whim. This is a group that has traveled together. That has done the impossible together, has seen the impossible together, that has been under the teaching of Jesus, that has experienced life and life to the fullest in many ways together. It's a group that knows each other and has been together for some time. And if you, if you remember back to week one when we were looking at the picture of the Sea of Galilee by Rembrandt, Rembrandt that, those are the disciples in the boat. This is what they've shared experiences like this because wouldn't you say that shared experience is powerful that it's moments like these that tie us together that they create depth of relationship and they establish trust it's one thing to say that oh yeah we're good friends we we get along and it's another thing to have gone through some stuff together and that's what's taken place with the disciples. They're in this upper room. They've had shared experiences. And they even have an awareness that they're in deep trouble. Rome is at their doorstep. Jerusalem is at their doorstep. And it wants blood. They're, they're, they're aware of this. And they're all together and trust is established. And yet one in the room would betray them. And Jesus knew that the betrayal was coming, that death was imminent, that he would be abandoned by those he loved and trusted and had spent his ministry with. And yet he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And in the middle of the meal, Jesus chooses to wash the feet of the disciples. I think there's a lot of things we need to understand about what it meant for Jesus to wash those feet. First of all, we know that slaves usually wash the feet of the feet, the feet of guests, and it was uh, it was probably like an open sandal type of culture. That was the, that was the attire of the time. It was dusty. It was it was not particularly nice for someone to to, to reach on down or wash someone's feet. It was not something they would take a lot of pride in. Perhaps it was designated for the lower class, in fact. And the disciples were travelers with Jesus. They would, they would walk and they would do things and they would see and then they would walk again. So you can imagine that it wasn't looking so good when they are in that moment together. And in this moment for Jesus, where he, he gets up off of, the, off of the table and he makes this decision to, to lower himself, to what would have been understood as a lower place, a lower status, something designated for slaves. Jesus does something immediately to, the, to all who are present. He, he illustrates that there is an abandonment of power at play. There is a declaration of love at play. And there is a rejection of the social status culture. 
This is, this is Jesus' rebellion for his disciples to see firsthand. That the way in which you have even adopted your practices with one another is not my way. To, to segment one another. To, to elevate yourself above others is, is not my way. There's, there's layers to what Jesus is communicating in this action. And even for, for us in our, this modern day culture, this Western society, I think we live in a very proud, egotistical society. In many ways, it's, it's considered acceptable and even normal for people to, to promote themselves, to praise themselves, to put themselves first, to, to build their platform is, is the normal thought. And in some ways, pride is almost considered a virtue. It seems like a characteristic of grit, of getting things done. While humility, and when I say humility, like real humility, not the kind that's curated by a PR company, is considered a weakness. I think everyone is, it seems, screaming for his or her own rights and seeking to be recognized as important. This is, the, this is the society we live in. And there's this preoccupation with self-esteem, self-love, self-glory, so much so that it is destructive to relationships all around because no culture can survive when pride runs rampant because pride always comes at a cost to relationships. And when relationships are not secure, society cannot actually function, and you actually dwindle into a purely individualistic mindset, which looks a lot like where we are today. Where the choices of the individual supersede the choices of relationship. And I'm not, I'm not contending to, to not care for yourself, or to not be kind to yourself, but we have lost the ability to consider our relationships through the lens of Christ because we have stopped considering one another first. And for Jesus in this moment, he's illustrating what humility really looks like. When the Bible talks about all of the things that keep us away from God, pride is often at the forefront. Pride is the, the elevation of self. It's the worship of self in many ways. It's the belief that my own desires, my own intentions are of the greatest priority, of the greatest significance, and they are of the greatest relevance. Whereas humility is the adoption of a mentality that places others before ourselves. Humility is what Jesus repeatedly teaches us. He constantly exalted the virtue of humility. And nowhere is that more clear than in John 13. Jesus is showing us that in the act of washing the feet of his disciples, that humility is not denying your strengths, but it's being honest in your weakness. This is Jesus living fully into his humanity. Because this is what pride does. Pride actually makes us artificial while humility makes us real. Humility 
It isn't just thinking less of yourself. It's actually recognizing the power that you hold and willingly let go of it or using it for others. This is what we need to understand here. We all hold power in relationships, in our words, in our, in our finances, in our time. These are all elements of power, and the manner in which we choose to actually wield them is an indication of pride or humility. And this is the mistake that we often make when it comes to humility. We believe that humility is simply the ignorance of those elements of power. But to be unaware of the power you hold in your life, relationally, racially, gender-wise, geographically, socioeconomically, to, to be ignorant of those things is not to be humble. Because Jesus recognizes the authority that he has. This is what the scripture says. Before he does the action of washing the disciples' feet, it says that he, was, he knew who he was. He knew the authority that he had. And with the power that he had in his hand, he chose to give that. See, that, that is humility. To recognize the power that you have and then to freely give of it. Do you know the power that you carry? Do you know the opportunities that you have that others might not? And do we operate with a sense of humility in that space by offering it to others in generosity? Or does pride come in the way and do we hold tightly to it? Because pride actually wields that power over others. Pride is preoccupied with self, and pride is far more common than you think it is. There's a reason why the Bible talks about it as often as it does, because pride seeps into everything that we do. If we were to consider the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples this morning, and if you placed yourself in his position, what do you think is actually going through your mind? This is, the, this is the pitfalls I find for myself when I'm operating or trying to be generous or trying to be humble. That this, this thought pops into my mind of, man, I hope they say thank you. I hope someone actually notices how much this costs me. I, I, I wish that other people would maybe do it a little bit more like me. Humility out of our own strength is so easily corrupted. Because humility out of our own strength is often still more concerned about ourselves. So for in this moment with Jesus, even the disciples are confused. Why are you washing my feet? This is, this is below you. This is not the power that you hold. But Jesus was aware 
and yet he chose to give it freely. That is humility. And this humble act is, in fact, a generous one. And this is often the case. Pride leads to selfish actions, while humility leads to generous ones. If you're wondering why it is difficult to be generous with your resources, time, yourself, I would ask of yourself the question of, am I I able to operate from a place of humility? Because that is where the foundation lies. But we're called to be generous. But we must understand that Jesus doesn't simply perform this act as the nice guy of saying that I'm going to do this because it's going to make everybody happy and then everyone's going to have clean feet and we get to go on the road and get them dirtied up again and then somebody else will take the cue and they'll, they'll wash those feet and maybe it'll make the world a better place and we'll get along real nice together. Jesus chooses to, to take this action because he knew who he was. It says that Jesus knew the power that God gave to him. Jesus was aware of his identity. And this is a massive part of our issue with generosity. That so often generosity is difficult to engage with because we don't know who we are. When you don't know your identity in Christ, when you don't know who Jesus calls you to be, it is so difficult to actually let go of all the things that you believe you're known by. We are quick to hold on to something. And if you find yourself that I, I, can't, I can't give this away, I, I'm not able to be generous with it, I'm not, I'm not able to let go of its control over me, the question that I would ask of you is how much is your identity tied into that thing? And, and it could be something that you don't even expect. Maybe, maybe it's how others think of you. It is this, it's just the idea of I'm known as so-and-so, therefore I can't speak outside of it. I can't be generous even in how I think about it. I can't be open-minded. I, it, it, even for myself, it can be good things. If my identity is purely as a pastor, I, I wonder if part of my struggle that I can face is do I have an open-mindedness to perhaps what the Spirit is trying to do within me personally? Am I so concerned about leading others that I can't be led by God? What are you holding on to so tightly that it has become who you are? Because the invitation that's given in this moment is to follow the example of Christ, not just in action, but in heart. Jesus knew who he was. And so he was able to get away from the comfort of the table, to get down on his knees, and to do something below himself. Because he knew his identity. Humility versus pride, generosity versus selfishness. This moment of washing feet is simply an outward expression of Jesus' personal identity. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew his power. Jesus knew his place. And Jesus knew his identity. And Jesus knew his purpose. And Jesus gave generously. It's a small portion of that scripture, but I think it is foundational for the act that is taken. 
Sometimes we only look at the action at play and we're unaware of the heart behind it. And we actually are very quickly prone to elevate an action and very slow to honor character. I, I love stories of hearing kindness from strangers, of someone at the Tim Hortons line paying for the person behind them. That's great. And, and we think, man, they're, they're so generous and they're so, so, so great. And I think they are generous actions. But this is not what Jesus is actually saying. He's not just saying, be nice to people. He's saying, would you take upon yourself my way? Would you hold the identity that I give to you and live a life from that foundation? So that generosity is not just a momentary action, but an ongoing lifestyle. That it is in our words, it is in our time, it is in our, in our money, it is in our treasure. It is in everything that we do that we give of ourselves because we know all that we have been given. When generosity comes from that place, then every single moment that we have the opportunity, we see the opportunity for life to be brought into it for joy to be brought into it. Because I've experienced this revelation of who Christ is, I so much more so want everyone around me to experience that as well. So I'm going to be generous with all that I am. Pride, would you be pushed to the side? Humility, would you be raised to the forefront? Because this is what we are invited to do. Not simply take an action, but to capture his heart. This is a moment that's taken place between Jesus and his disciples that's meant to be celebrated. They're, they're, they're in a little bit of a party situation. They're in the upper room. There's food all around. There's drink flowing. This is a group that's had shared experiences. And then Jesus, he, he has this moment that takes place in the middle of it all. And I, I find it fascinating that Jesus in the middle, it says he gets up from the meal. I want you to imagine this. You're with all your friends and family. Everyone's enjoying some good food. And, and somebody gets up from the meal, takes off their outer clothing, wraps a, a, a towel around their waist, and begins to wash people's feet. That is an interruption to a meal, <laughs> if I've ever heard of one. That is an interruption. And I think this idea of interruption is not isolated to this moment. Interruption is present all throughout Jesus' ministry. So many of the paradigms and the, the, the codified ideas that Jesus presents throughout his ministry doesn't come in a, a dramatic sermon, but it comes in these moments of interruption. There's a story of, of, of Jesus, and he's, he's in a house, and he's talking to people. We don't know what he's talking about in that moment. But then like, someone comes through the roof, and he's healed in that moment. And that's what we hear about. This, this massive interruption takes place. Jesus provides a truth, and that's what we're given. Jesus is walking on, on, on the road, and, and Jesus is even in the midst of miracles. 
And then a lady comes up and touches the hem of his robe and he feels the power leave him and heal her. This interruption, it didn't go as expected and we see a revelation in that moment. Time and time again in Jesus' ministry, the interruption was the place where the power came to be, where the revelation came to be. And this is what I, I find for myself. I do not create pace for my life that allows for interruption to be possible. There is a dramatic clinging for control that I have in my daily rhythms. That even when there's spaces like, like a dinner, I have an exact idea of how I want it to go. I definitely don't want people washing my feet in that moment, so let's continue on with the meal. And even for Peter in this moment, he, he had this idea of, I have an expectation of how this is all supposed to play out. I'm supposed to eat a meal, and if anyone's going to wash someone's feet, I'm going to wash Jesus's. And the minute he has his expectation or his his idea of control broken, he doesn't know what to do. Because this is the power of interruption. Jesus had a pace to his life that allowed interruption to come into it. Either for him to respond to it or to create it. And this rhythm of interruption was space that he was able to create for generosity to be shown. Because generosity was not a controlled, fabricated set of checkboxes that he led into every single day. I got to be generous to six people today, so I got to make sure that I create time for that. It was an expression of a lifestyle of humility. Because that's what real generosity is, right? I'm walking through a grocery store, and I got a busy day ahead. But I see someone who just seems to be struggling. Would you interrupt your day and maybe pray for them? Your you're walking down the street and uh, you're, you're, you're running to catch, catch the bus, perhaps. And you see someone who has fallen and hurt themselves. Are you going to stop to help them? This is what generosity is. It is the humble lifestyle of Christ interrupting our daily clamoring for control. We are so guilty of it. I'm so guilty of it. And I hate interruptions, but Jesus loves them. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, the great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day. We crave control and security. And we look 
forward to moving into the expected. And even the unexpected moments that might pop up, we like to have a level of control associated with them. But yet so much of our days come at us. And these moments, they're stacked moments in our life. And most of them are interruptions. So I wonder, if I am to match the pace of Jesus, I need to see the interruptions of my life, not as interruptions, but as the invitation itself. As, as our ministry itself. Do you know that? You have a ministry as a follower of Christ to demonstrate and reflect the person of Jesus in every space we occupy. I wonder how many of us have oriented our life to be a good person in such a way that we still hold control. Or can we even be generous in that way? Not just generous in a secure manner. Because this isn't what Jesus is presenting to us. We're invited to follow his example. And I know this is easier said than done. Worship team, you can join me at the front. I've heard a variety of reasons of what this story is trying to communicate. And yes, I believe that there is an example that is very clear that Jesus is presenting at the end. When Jesus says, to follow my example, to love one another just as I have loved you. But I think that there's more, more that John is trying to communicate, actually. Because this moment where Peter rejects Jesus, and he says, hey, you shouldn't be washing my feet. This is what Jesus' response is. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter was missing what was happening to him. Because it wasn't what he expected. And if you're to hear anything this morning, hear this. Jesus lays forward a call of generosity and humility as he's shown towards us. But he says, first, you must receive the ways in which I am generous to you. Because when I serve out of my own strength, pride intervenes. Selfishness creeps in. And control and security start to play a larger role than it should. You can't serve others like Christ until you receive the way in which Jesus has served you. And you can't adopt the actions of Christ until you receive the gift of Christ. This is what Jesus is showing. There, there's an order to this that he shows even in this moment. I lead the way. He gets up from the table. He gives the gift. And then he says, follow me. Do as I do. But there's something that takes place in between. He's asking, would you receive it? Or are we Peter saying, no, don't touch my dirty, tired, weary feet? Unable to receive that gift and simply trying to live that lifestyle out of our own strength. Having a generosity that falls short. Having a generosity that ends up asking questions that are more about ourselves than about others. And that's the question 
I believe we're asked this morning, will you, will you let him wash your tired feet? I wonder how many of us are missing the beautiful story that God is inviting us into because it isn't what we expected. Will we let him? Will we know the full extent of God's love for us? Henry Nouwen explains, he wants us to bend ourselves to the ground and touch the places in each other that need most watching, washing. So what a privilege it is, not only to be washed by a holy God, but to be offered the opportunity for our lives to become the place in which the full extent of that love is once more exposed to the world. So this is my prayer for us this morning. May you recognize the power that you hold and not let it hold you. May you be humble. May you know your identity in the loving arms of God. May you be generous. May you see the interruptions in your life as invitations and relinquish control. May we be surrendered. And may you see Christ kneeling before you, washing your tired, dirty, weary feet clean and receiving that gift of love to strengthen you, to heal you, to lift you up, and to empower you to love others the same. May this be what we discover this morning. Let's pray together. Spirit, we just, we just pray for our hearts right now. Our, our good intentions are our well-crafted practices are not good enough out of our own strength. We want to be more like you, but not simply in the action, but in our hearts. I pray right now for every bit of pride that exists within us. That your holy fire would, would purge it from us so that we could live lives of humility that begin to look like you. And in all the ways where we have taken the action and forgotten your heart, we repent. That we've heard the story of washing feet and we've, we've done generous things but have found ourselves falling prey to our fleshly desires. That our generosity feels inhibited by our need for notoriety. That our humility feels hijacked by a society that would make us believe that pride is the virtue. I pray that we would be a people fully surrendered for each of us this morning, may our hearts be turned to you. May we see you before us, offering a free gift to wash us clean. To receive that gift this morning and to live in that freedom. Thank you for the hope that you place within us. 
for the invitation that you give to us. May this morning be a space that we discover and encounter you in a way that leads us forward. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.